Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Quick bit of uh, show business uh, before we get started here, guys. As of today, I'm hereby officially moving the show to an every other week schedule instead of aiming for once a week like I've uh, done for the last three or so years. So the next show after this one will drop on or around October 2nd, depending where you are in the world when you download it. Uh, I'm making this change official now since, as you've seen over the summer, I've been missing a lot of weeks and it always drives me crazy. Uh, And I was inspired by one of my favorite podcasts, The Flophouse, which switched to every two weeks in order not to burn themselves out. And subsequently, they are celebrating their uh, 10th anniversary this month. And as I would like this podcast to last a decade at least, uh, I'm not, I'm I'm basically just going to gear down to a pace that will allow me (laughs) to keep this going for a decade, uh, make it easier for me to sustain. Uh, That doesn't mean I won't drop a surprise episode here and there when one falls in my lap or if enough episodes pile up. Uh, I, I, I'll think of it this way. Let's, let's think of it this way. I'd rather surprise you on the upside than always be worried that I'm disappointing you on the downside. I'd rather you say, wow, uh, I wasn't expecting a new episode this week, but here it is, uh, rather than another Monday rolling around with an empty queue. So that is what we're going to do now. Anyway, on to today's episode. On today's episode, Ben and David... The guys from the podcast Acquired are back, and today we're going to talk about a topic that very much lends itself to the unique format of our two podcasts uh, crossing over. We're going to be talking about the AOL Time Warner merger in the early 2000s, which is generally considered to be uh, certainly one of the worst mergers of all time and possibly one of the greatest business disasters generally. I thought, rather than just doing the history of the thing by myself, getting Ben and David back on the show would allow me to do the history and then blend it with their unique analysis format, thereby letting us go deeper into this story than maybe I normally would. So, today, like a Harvard Business School case study of a 70-car pileup on the interstate, here is the story of the AOL Time Warner merger. So like $1,000 put in dominoes at its nadir um, has a better return than Apple. Wow. Dominoes. We're in the wrong business. Yeah. I know. Uh, Bottom know. fishing is a dangerous game, though. Welcome back to episode 44 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. So today, back by popular demand, we've got Brian McCullough of the Internet History Podcast on the show for a crossover episode. So thank you. uh, Thank you for joining us. And hello, Brian. Hi, guys. Uh, Popular demand. Are you sure? (laughs) You was, actually, yes. <laughs> you're, you're, this, sure. this episode this episode was one of uh the more popular ones uh of this year. Did we do the the other one this year? It's it trust me, it's it's one it's in my top 20 for sure and I'm over 150 episodes at this point. Wow, sweet. Well, you are in sweet. our top 5, so 
I think that uh, I think the melding of the format sort of like makes us all three of us uh, up our games a little bit, you know. It does. It does. I think because uh, it, it forced a little change for us. We were just talking about this before the show, but listeners, um, Dave and I were talking about how, you know, we do our research uh, for these episodes with Brian, but um, knowing that he's got such a clear narrative around it, we sort of just have this spew of facts and we can sort of play um, play the role of, uh, hey, wait a minute, what about instead of actually structuring the narrative ourselves? I, continuing a little bit here about uh, you guys probably want to know what the episode is about. So listeners may remember the last time we did this uh, in episode 33 with uh, Overture's acquisition by Yahoo. And today we're going back to uh, kind of a similar time uh, in uh, a little bit before in 2000. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking about the sort of legendary, uh, potentially the biggest flop of all time, um, a legend in, in the world of M&A, the merger of AOL and Time Warner in 2000 so um buckle in because this is, is the word i would use <laughs> infamous. Uh, no, notorious infamous, infamous yeah um uh cautionary tale maybe all of the above well let's um, just skip to the end uh when we all say worst acquisition of all time that's the end of the episode thanks for having me on <laughs> <laughs> but today save the listeners some time we're gonna be looking at it from the aol perspective so was it the worst of all time or was it brilliant We'll find out. Definitely have some thoughts on that. There's <laughs> <laughs> a change in the format where David uh, David teases the audience into actually listening to the whole episode. <laughs> Cue campy teaser now. Yes, yes. Well, before we get into it, um, listeners, I, I want to mention uh, we've got a Slack that is over 900 strong now. So if you like discussing M&A, IPOs, major tech news that happens, um, come join us at acquired.fm and uh, um, join the Slack we also love reviews, so if you um, if you feel so inclined, uh, pop open Apple Podcasts. You actually can can pause this episode right now and go and uh, and, and rate us on um, on Apple Podcasts, and it makes a world of difference. So um, thanks to those of you who have done that, and uh, encourage more to do it in the future. And um, on to our sponsor. So our sponsor for this episode is Perkins Cooey, the counsel to great companies. Today's sponsorship is with Jeff Bush, the firm wide chair of Perkins M and A practice. Jeff, what should tech entrepreneurs do in the period leading up to a sale transaction to be prepared and positioned for a smooth process? Well, first, an entrepreneur needs to be honest with himself or herself about the company's shortcomings. That could be a weakness in the business, a strong competitor, poor record keeping, maybe a deal that was cut that shouldn't have been cut, or some combination of those things. An M&A transaction tends to show a really bright light on the company. The dents and dings will be obvious, and buyers usually will raise them as issues. It's best not to hide things or hope that they won't be found. It's better to think like a buyer, identify the problems, own them, and be ready to discuss them and suggest solutions and mitigation steps. Well, thanks, Jeff. Listeners, I recorded that audio before even picking this episode, and uh, it's oddly prescient on this one. If uh, you want to learn more about Perkins Cooey or reach out to Jeff directly, you can click the link in the show notes or in the Slack. Thanks a lot to Perkins Cooey for sponsoring. Now, without any further ado, Brian, would you like to take us into the story? Yeah. So AOL Time Warner, uh, the notorious Titanic of uh, especially um, dot-com era uh, shenanigans, we we want to start with AOL uh, because, as I've learned by doing my show, uh, people of a certain age 
have often said to me, um, thanks for doing episodes on AOL because I kind of never understood what they did. Which I get because if if you're in a time when the internet's all around you, it's in the ether, then, oh, it was just an ISP. Why are they so valuable? Um, You know, they only ever had 25 million subscribers at their height. So what is that? How is that compared to, you know, having billions of users like a, a Facebook has? So let's start with AOL and and posit that AOL over the course of the 90s was probably the best stock to buy if you were able to buy at its 1992 IPO and sell uh, New Year's Day in the year 2000, your stock would have appreciated 80,000%. Um, at its height, uh, its market cap was about $150 billion, which was worth more than General Motors and Boeing combined, was worth more than, you know, Obviously, Time Warner, Disney, all sorts of people like that. Um, it was estimated that uh, more than 2,000 AOL employees were, on paper at least, made millionaires by AOL stock. So, um, you know, you talk of uh, Facebook billionaire millionaires, sorry, um, you know, even Microsoft millionaires. Uh, AOL uh, made people, a lot of people on paper, uh, really rich. Um, so AOL, yes, was an ISP. Um yeah. Back in our day, kids, you used to have to pay for the internet. <laughs> and, you and it wasn't fast. And, and wasn't you couldn't fast. make a phone call. <laughs> you couldn't make a phone call because you had to dial in over your landline. Um, cell phones existed, but most people didn't have them. At their height, AOL had 25 million subscribers. That was 2002, so after this merger takes place. But they were accounting for, at various times, 60% of U.S. internet traffic uh, in the 90s. So there were other ISPs, um, you know, even indie ISPs. But in the 90s, there weren't cable modems. There wasn't broadband. I mean, there was, uh, um, but most people dialed in, and AOL was the main company that people dialed in with. AOL has a long, fascinating, tortured history going back to the early 80s. Again, I have a couple episodes on AOL that... Um, yeah, they've got some serious name changes, right? I mean, they didn't, they didn't yeah, start as AOL. Control Data Corporation, there was the source. Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it, you know, <laughs> one man's pivoting is another man's um, failing at one business and jumping into another. <laughs> and that that's actually, you can look at AOL in two ways. Like either it's one of the more tenacious and brilliant entrepreneurial stories because they basically lose money for the better part of 15 years, certainly more than a decade. And what they're chasing is the idea of online, but it's, they're so, they're so soon and so early that, that, um, they have to wait for the world to catch up to them. I think the other interesting thing to point about it point out about AOL is it's not a Silicon Valley company. It's, it's headquarters no. is in Dulles, Virginia. <laughs> Exactly. Um, which isn't even New York or, I mean, it's DC, but so, right. It's not even because AOL, as we'll talk about, gets into, um, especially thing, Madison Avenue and creating content and, and Time Warner, obviously, but they weren't even New York based. They were in the middle of nowhere. And everybody at the time always complained about that. Like going to Dulles was like going to Siberia or something. So, Again, we're going back to the 80s. Um, it's not till the early 90s when um, they kind of tie themselves to Microsoft and Windows that they 
um, sort of leap to the head of the pack. There's a whole pack here. There's CompuServe. There's Genie. There's Prodigy. There's all these. Um, and, and CompuServe, I was on CompuServe. Um, so my dad was a beta tester for uh, CompuServe and for AOL. So he's got free accounts. And I remember being on CompuServe and thinking it was better. But I, my understanding is that it was like only sort of for the super internet savvy nerds and AOL was much better at reaching the mass market. Does that does that feel like sort of why AOL won there? Uh, 100%. Uh, AOL had the derogatory or pejorative uh, name of, of training wheels for the internet. But they actually embraced that and it makes sense. I mean... I've said on the show, like, you know, a lot of people's first email was was AOL in a time when you you didn't have email unless you were at a college or or at work or something like that. Um, But also AOL trained people how to live online, like they gave you a screen name and you went into the chat rooms and you did dirty sex chat and things like that. And, uh, you know, you could create an online identity, like, and 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 this is what we should talk about what AOL's business was um you know they eventually basically made their money by allowing people onto the web but they were also trying to curate the web and create this online experience that would like hand handhold people into it yeah like, i mean I, it's really amazing like we're kind of making fun of AOL in a lot of ways here for you know being a Dulles Virginia company you know again nothing against Dulles Virginia but not where you think of as a tech hub but but they really pioneered a lot of the paradigms of the internet that are some of the most valuable you know companies and products today I mean AOL instant messenger aim you know was basically messenger I mean AOL was a lot like like Facebook before Facebook uh let's can we remember to bring that up at the end (laughs) because actually yeah AOL is always about to run out of money perpetually because what they have to do in the early 90s is you know they create this it's called a walled garden so they they go to people like time warner and they say hey can you give us sports illustrated content they go to um you know this magazine that newspaper and say hey uh, we'll pay you you know x millions of dollars allow us to you know republish your articles and your pictures and things like that in our walled garden um and so there's all sorts of times when they get saved by an investment from um, this company uh, or like Paul Allen invests a lot and, and, and basically tries to take him over in the early 90s and they poison pill him. Uh, again, coming back to this idea that they're either they were either not really a smart tech company or they were these insane scrappers that they held on to this idea that online could be a thing. And then position themselves that when the tidal wave came, they just wrote it, right? Um, I, I've talked again on the podcast before about reasons why Prodigy dropped the ball, CompuServe dropped the ball, AOL you know, picked it up and ran with it. But essentially what you need to know is by 1996, essentially, AOL is the primary ISP, but it also has this huge amount of content that is so what you would do is you would dial in and you'd be on AOL. You wouldn't be on the the web. AOL would give you your email, they'd feed you their headlines again, you know, paying the New York Times to provide headlines, that sort of thing. And then if you wanted to go to the web, then you'd bring up a browser or you'd go through them like it, it was a channel that you would go to. So it was always something that they were sort of wrestling with like they wanted you to stay on there in their walled garden but then they also couldn't help but be most people's first introduction to the web and the internet right um 
and they they ride this through the 90s through the and they this. they they did eventually have a browser in AOL, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a whole nother story about how they double cross Netscape and um uh, signed a deal with Microsoft and um right and then they had cuz they had bought a browser called Booklink and so but the but the point is is that people aren't sophisticated in 96 97 98 for all they know AOL is the internet. And so when I say that they're sort of wrestling with this. They want to be, um, somebody describes it as they want to be the carnival cruise lines for an online experience. So they want to curate it for you. But then at the same time, the reality is, is that most people getting on the web and, and doing things like going to Yahoo or whatever are doing it through AOL and they can't conceptually tell the difference, right? I, I, I literally, I'd love to hold on to this until tech themes later, but like it's it over and over and over again. The only thing that I'm thinking is bundling and unbundling. Like it is incredible how, um, you know, the entire internet, everything that we know is sort of the open web and various different protocols and things on various different platforms are all just bundled within AOL. And they were, you know, um, they were basically making all the revenue for that for, for a very long time before, uh, before we started to unbundle it all into these separate services. Now there's some also interesting things about AOL's past, which are not, uh, AOL presented this sort of, um, you know, Steve Case and his khakis, uh, in gap ads, this sort of wholesome all American thing. But they made most of their money by originally charging by the hour, and most people were in the chat rooms doing sexy talk to each other. So in in the background, that's how they make their money. But also they had a lot of things like accounting scandals where they get sued by even attorneys general that, like, you're not reporting. I can't even remember the details, but they're like... Uh, reporting certain sales right away, even though it should have been, you know, over time and things like that. So they kind of always were playing fast and loose, but you can feel like, again, these are scrappers that are staying alive, staying alive with this dream of online becoming a thing until it finally is a thing. And it's essentially 96, 97 that it is a thing. And they wake up and they have 10 million subscribers that, that, you know, 60% of internet traffic is going through their pipes um, you know, in 98 or is it 97, you have, you know, you've got mail, the movie, like, again, we cannot underemphasize how much AOL was sort of the gateway for America embracing online and the web and the internet. They're also on the web. They're a portal like Yahoo is, um, by the year 2000, four out of every five web users were visiting an AOL property at least once a month. Um, and they, start to make real money by 97, 98. So again, and, this is... And when you say an AOL property, that's on the web, but something that's on by AOL outside of the AOL walled garden? You know what? I pulled that out of my notes and I, I don't actually know. But but that's what I'm saying is that they're playing both sides of the fence. So, and we'll get into this, like how, how they're start starting to make real money. Like they would sell you, okay, be on our AOL walled garden side or be on our AOL.com side. They had all this stuff to sell. Actually, we're going to get to that right in a second. Um, so AOL starts to make real money in the dot-com era and no one is making real money in the dot-com era. So that's one of the reasons why their stock starts to go through the roof. But then the other thing that Wall Street is seeing is like, okay, this internet thing is happening, and the majority of Americans are getting online via their pipes. 
So what do you want to do? That's the stock you want to be in. You know, there's a Henry Blodgett quote where he says, you know, AOL is the blue chip, blue chippiest of the, of the internet stocks. Um, and they're actually, you know, they're the first internet company to be included in the S and P 500. Guess what company they replaced? Actually, there could be a million. It was Woolworth. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, as late as 1998, they're still under a $30 billion market cap, but then like everything else in the dot-com era within 18 months, you know, that's ballooned above 150 billion. Um, and we've, so, we've talked about this era on, on, the, on this show before, and you certainly have on, on your show, Brian, but like, I think it's worth like, again, as always just pausing on this, like as late as 1998, AOL was worth you know, market cap of under $30 billion. And that was insanely expensive. And that was insanely expensive. And then, you know, 18 months later, <laughs> uh, you know, they're buying Time Warner and the combined company is valued over $350 billion. Like that is how crazy that moment in time was. Well, let me tell you some more reasons why Wall Street was in love with AOL. What they're looking at is, you know, a lot of analysts call it like a, a three-legged stool or whatever. So they're getting money from the subscriptions. Again, I think by 2000, they hit 20, 20 million people paying uh, $20 a month, right? And then they're a content platform. In the early days when they had to go to uh, New York Times and say, we'll pay you $2 million to get your headlines, by 97, 98, they can say to the New York Times, you pay us. If you want to be in our walled garden, we've got the eyeballs, we've got the real estate, you pay us. So they're basically a content platform that's very lucrative. But the big thing, and this is going to be key to this whole conversation, is that by 97, 98, they're making tons of money on advertising. Because, again, they're basically where everybody goes. You know, we, we think of people starting their day on Facebook now or, you know, whatever. So that's where your email was on AOL. Um, by 9899, that's where your, uh, your buddy list was on AOL. And, but th this whole concept of, of people starting their day online, like AOL again, sort of like trained people how to do that. So I just did an episode with, um, uh, early, uh, Yahoo guy, all of the portals in this time period make money essentially by selling ads to other dot coms. The whole dot-com bubble can be thought of as like just a snake eating its own tail. <laughs> if you happen to be one of the portals, though, you're just you're the one doing the eating. And if you're one of these venture-backed startups, you're you're uh, the tail. That's which being is eaten. so funny. I mean, the, the parallels to Facebook are just like jumping off the page, right? That there was that that era. Um, like three, four years ago where everyone was saying that, oh, yes, Facebook discovered this magical new mobile news feed ad and they're mostly, um, you know, on this new format that's to install apps and all the apps are funded by venture capitalists that are just paying money to startups to pay money to Facebook to get this. I mean, it's, it's like hilarious how it's the same narrative around the company uh, two decades later. Let me give you some brilliant examples of that. So uh, here's a dot-com company called drcoop.com. Um, C. Everett Koop was the Surgeon General of the United States. It, it, this is how crazy the dot-com era is. They, they, DrKoop.com is a company that IPOs to do health, uh, uh, make a health website, right? Uh, I don't know the date of their IPO. I, it's probably 98, 99, definitely 99, I think. Um, they IPO and raise $85 million for their website. A month after 
they debut on the stock market. Dr. Coop turns around and basically spends all of that money by agreeing to pay AOL $89 million over four years to provide health content to AOL users. So all of the money they raised on their IPO, they turn around a month later and they hand it over to, to AOL. <laughs> because everybody thinks that AOL is where you've got to be. Um, and so AOL in 9899 is starting to ka-ching like crazy. Like there's a company, uh, a long distance phone provider called Telesave that pays a hundred million dollars. Um, and you know, this is, this is playing off dot coms. Every, like there's a company called preview travel that pays $21 million to be AOL's online travel agent. Eight, 1-800-Flowers pays $25 million to be the florist. Although I, I had Jim McCann on the show and he said that that worked out very well for them. But AOL, AOL can play off Barnes & Noble, uh, who pays $40 million to be the book-selling partner in the walled garden section, versus Amazon that pays $19 million to be part of the AOL.com web portal. Um, eBay ponies up $75 million to be the exclusive auction provider. Um, and, and it, it kind of works out for everybody. Like when Dr. Coop's deal is announced, its stock actually leaps 56% in a day. This is the dot-com era, friend. <laughs> um, but everyone believes that they have to be on AOL, just like everyone believes you've got to advertise on Yahoo or whatever. So AOL's in this position to just start banking money. Like all of a sudden they're turning a profit where they hadn't for years and they're meaningful profit and billions and billions of dollars. The guy behind this era is Bob Pittman, who I don't know if you if that name rings a bell to you guys. Um, he was a one of the original founders of MTV. He became very famous for being the hard driving um, guy behind this AOL deal making machine. He, he was their COO, right? I think so. Um, right. We'll get to him later after the deal. Uh, the deal uh, falls apart. <laughs> but, um, Internally, his team of guys that would go around and shake the trees for these dot-com deals were called the hunter-gatherers because they, quote, descended on the dot-coms like scavengers and made them offers they couldn't refuse. Um, and There's a quote um, where uh, an anonymous dot-com company says that the it was like high-pressure, just, you know, boiler room-type stuff. Quote, for weeks it was... You're great. You're great. You're great. We want to do business with you. And then one day it turns out that we have to give them every last dollar we had in the bank and 20% of our company. Um, another dot commer says that AOL demanded 30% of her company, quote, and then for good measure, they tell us these are our terms. You have 24 hours to respond. And if you don't screw you, we're going to go to your competitor. So listen, these are crazy times. These are fat times for AOL. Um, Again, I want to bring up this idea of culture and AOL being scrappers and doing whatever it takes to stay alive. So why do they stop when all of a sudden they're like in the catbird seat? Um, they seem to be the nexus of of this new Internet economy. And they're uh, Bob Pittman's army of dealmakers, you know, basically... Uh, basically drive what is essentially the thing that really makes Wall Street go nuts. Um, so we're, we're going to get into this again later, but everyone thinks that the AOL, AOL went away because people stopped um, doing dial-up or paying for dial-up and they moved to broadband and, and things like that. But the thing that we'll see actually has the deal sort of collapse and AOL stock price collapse and things like that is the fact that 
what made their stock appreciate so much was that they had this insane growth in advertising. And that's where the money was coming from. That's where the actual cash flow was coming from. Sure, it's great to have in the background this recurring revenue of the, you know, the subscription revenue, but that's not what was actually moving the needle in terms of why Wall Street loves them. Yep. It was all of these all of these deals they were doing with all these dot com startups that were giving them all of their money. Exactly. Well, interestingly enough to transition here. Um, because they're doing all these deals with these dot-com companies, they have sort of uh, their ears to the ground, and they can start to see um, when you know um, the money starts to dry up, VC money starts to dry up, IPOs start to go bust. They're the ones that know before anybody else that, listen, this bubble might be bursting. And so... It, it, and, in, and so what in, in from like a sort of macroeconomic perspective, why are the David, you may actually know more about this. Like why, why are the VCs uh, ceasing to invest there? Um, so what's the signal to them to stop? It's hard to say <laughs> uh, again, because we're talking about such compressed timeframes here. If I were to speculate, I think it's probably just that so much money had gone into the system without, you know, real returns um, and so you start getting to the bottom of the barrel. Well, actually, that's that's it. They got great returns. Again, the, uh, there's other things I don't have them well, in front of me. Paper in my notes, returns, but, right, right, right. But but see, for for them, it doesn't matter because anything can IPO for a certain amount of time, right? And so once you get past the lockup period, you can take actual garbage public, and it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, I was thinking more from the limited partner perspective. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but what you said is exactly it: is that when they are taking garbage public, eventually everything is garbage, and enough people have kind of gotten rich enough and and fat enough that they're like, you know what, I'm going to sit these out. You know, the the seventh pets startup. I'm going to sit this one out. And so that that in my my personal theory is that that was it. It's also a combination of people realizing that the returns on online advertising were not good, you know, the click-through rates, you know, are are plummeting, so the the actual so that's always been such an underpinning of things like, you know, ad rates underpinning it's sort of like, you know, the plankton in the sea or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that's that's a key point too. I mean, I think to come back to it. I'm sure that had a lot to do with it, too, is these companies that had been venture funded and then even IPO'd had given all their money to AOL and Yahoo and other portals and with expectation that that would drive huge clicks and huge revenue. Um, and then when it doesn't, then they go bankrupt and then there's no more money to feed into well, the system. Well, there's also it's it's the 1999 Super Bowl when I think there were 30 uh, dot com companies or maybe it was 2000. It, it makes more sense that it was 2000 that, you know, are paying two million dollars a piece for your, your one Super Bowl ad. And that worked out for certain companies like Hot Jobs famously. But then others, you know, you've never heard of again. And they, they blow, you know, their two million dollars of the 10 million that they raised and. Listen, it, it, there's a reason why it's it's a, called a mania. <laughs> there's a reason why, you know, after a party, you have a hangover the next day because you did some crazy stuff. But um, <laughs> that, that was the times. Um, so to come back to this, the as I said, they are, know before anyone else because they can see this. They can see, well, listen, Dr. Coop's not going to raise another round. 
So, you know, when that deal is up in three years or whatever it is, where are we going to get another Dr. Coop, right? So as early as, and um, I want to stop and mention, there's three great books on this. <laughs> it's unusual that there's been this many books written about a, a dot-com era thing. Um, there's Kara Swisher's book, There Must Be a Pony in Here Somewhere. There's uh, Fool's Rush In by Nina Monk. And there's also Stealing Time by Alex Klein. Um, so in one of those, um, you can see, and there's quotes from internal memos after other later lawsuits. As early as December 98, um, internal emails show that like Steve Case and, and, and Pittman and the other lieutenants are kicking around the idea that they need to start thinking about a safe lily pad to kind of land this company on because they're seeing the bubble bursting. Um, and so they're, this is 98, December 98, but so it's still another 18 months before the bubble actually bursts. Um, so they, they, they think about um, other internet companies, um, and we'll get into this later, but they, they, they seriously consider eBay. Um, but Case was generally... Didn't, sorry, go Didn't ahead. they like, actually have Meg Whitman like waiting okay. in a room or something? I, I'll, I'll tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, um, but the Steve Case was wary of doubling down on a, another internet company because th that makes sense strategically. If you think the bubble's going to burst, why do another internet company? Two anchors tied to one another. Are yeah, just sink yeah. Faster. So um, he says something like, "Let's look beyond the internet and quote identify companies that have a profound impact on how people get information, communicate with others, which is our core business. Byproducts are entertained, etc." So there's major courtships with AT&T, the, the, the pre-singular merger AT&T. Um, Disney, that they went hard at Disney, but apparently Michael Eisner was a hard no. Um, and the, the quote, I think this is from Swisher's book. It, one of the AOL guys says, uh, we all knew we were living on bo borrowed time and we had to buy something of substance by using that huge currency. Uh, we didn't use the term bubble, but we did talk about a coming nuclear winter. Um, well, one of their problems is that they also know that dial-up is a limited technology that's going to be eclipsed by broadband. Again, they're not stupid. As much as they're not maybe, you know, a Silicon Valley company, huge technologist, they know that broadband is coming either through DSL, which people thought would be a thing at the time, but mainly cable modems. So... A lot of thinking went into um, we should get a cable company, or that's probably why they were talking to AT and T. You know, AT and T had DSL at the time. Um, another quote from Kara Swisher's book is uh, anonymous AOL guy says cable was the driver of everything. Um, without it, no deal made sense. So, Time Warner is the biggest of the media companies at this point in time. Also they have a little thing called uh, Time Warner Cable. So if Steve Case doesn't want to do an internet uh, tie-up, he wants something that has more substance. No one's going to believe if they decide they're going to buy an oil company or something like that, though they could have. They had the, the, the uh, market cap to basically buy anything at that point. So what he believes is, is Time Warner has... The content. And remember, they spent a decade believing that content was the thing that would make it online become mainstream, become a thing. And so it's, you know, uh, content is key. How many times have we heard that over the decades? Uh, Time Warner has this, you know, Tiffany 
platinum content going back hundreds of years. And by the way, they have a cable company. I think it was the third largest, maybe the second largest at the time. So I'm going to take an aside here and tell you the story of Jerry Levin and Time Warner. Jerry Levin, the CEO of Time Warner at this point, made his bones through technology. He basically, he didn't invent HBO, didn't come up with the idea, but he was the guy behind the strategy of let's deliver this pay channel via satellite TV. Um, He makes his name, rises up through the ranks um, via the incredible success of HBO. Um, And Jerry Levin believed in technology because of that. And in fact, uh, over the several decades at the company, he continued to try to pioneer technological um, advances, believing that th- th- there's untold new ways in the future that, that technology is going to be able to deliver content and media and things like that. They invest in the full service network in Orlando, which was um, sort of a, an attempt before the web took off to t- sort of do, you know, what they called 500 channels and, you know, shopping with your remote through your TV and things like that. Um, time, uh, it was time at the time before they bought Warner, um, uh, spent about a billion dollars on that. Um, they also, when the web comes around, there's a site called Pathfinder that they throw several hundred million dollars after. Um, I have a lovely episode on my, of my podcast about Pathfinder because, um, it, it, it's gone down the memory hole, but it deserves to be remembered for all of the things that it pioneered in terms of trying to deliver media on the web. Um, but it also lost them a ton of money. Around this time, corporate America, there's a watchword, everyone needs an internet strategy. Um, you know, Disney does the Go Network. There was NBCI. There was all these initiatives. If you're a media company, you're trying anything you can do. Barry Dealer tries to buy uh, Lycos, or was it AltaVista? I can't remember. Um Everyone thinks that you're going to be Amazon. You've got to come up with a way to either embrace the internet and the web or combat it or something. So you have Jerry Levin, who's always believed in technology, is going to change content and media. Um, Time Warner has failed time and time again to come up with an internet strategy. And so in 1999 when the People's Republic of China is having its 50th anniversary and, and all of the, you know, the politicians and business leaders and, and it's basically Davos and Beijing uh, for, for that period of time. Everyone's in Beijing um, celebrating the 50th uh, anniversary of the People's Republic of China. And um, Steve Case starts to seriously court Jerry Levin. Jerry Levin thinks this is great. This is going to solve his, it's going to prove him right that, that, if he can marry the greatest media company in the world to what everyone believes is the greatest internet company, his vision of technology changing media will come true. This is going to be his legacy. Um, there's in the various books, it's a, a complex courtship. This is where I believe the, the, the eBay thing comes in. My theory is, is that they kept talking to eBay because they were using it as a stalking horse. Like, actually, I'm going to open up uh, the Kara Swisher book here. Um, the week before, it, it might even be the day before, um, they actually announce the, the, the merger, the, the deal with Time Warner. Uh, Meg Whitman and, and their Goldman Sachs uh, people are at AOL headquarters, um, 
and they're in one conference room. This is the main conference room, um, trying to work out a deal so that AOL is going to buy eBay. In what's called the Malibu room on the opposite end of the floor is Time Warner and their lawyers, and they're you know working on the deal that's eventually going to go through. So it's a comical scene. This is quoting Swisher. Executives are shuffling in and out, alternatively uh, apologizing to and ignoring Whitman and her team who are sitting there cooling their heels, wondering what they're, they're not quite sure what's going on. Is this just the way AOL works? They're famously flaky and like aggressive at various times, like sort of passive aggressive almost. And so uh, spending a day there where nothing really gets done and, and, and uh, lawyers are running out of the room and, and disappearing. And where are they going? They don't really know. They don't know that uh, Time Warner's in the other room. So at the end of the day, Whitman and the, the team is leaving. She goes into Bob, Bob Pittman's office to say goodbye. And she says, quote, you've got a lot going on here, it seems. And of course, she had no idea. I think it's the next day that they announced the Time Warner thing. But so, yeah, they basically now this is this is definitely an aside. What if they had done the eBay deal? <laughs> because eBay survived the dot-com bus better than everybody. Huh. Well, and in large part due to because of PayPal, which of course came later. And then that's the counterfactual. Would if 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 would AOL have been smart enough to have uh, allowed the PayPal uh, acquisition? But but if you look if you look at eBay stock, like it basically it goes down some, but then it reaches its height. It it surpasses its dot com bubble height in like two thousand three two thousand four. It's like the only stock that does like in a time period when Amazon's down to like five dollars um, because eBay's business basically never dipped. Um, they so in retrospect, which we'll get into um, buying eBay was the way to go. They should have gone with a with an Internet yeah. company. So I'm going to I'm going to save this. I'm going to come back in tech themes. This is my tech theme here. But, you know, this is um, well, I'm going to say much more on this later. Suffice to say that, you know, eBay was the much better business for the internet, uh, certainly than Time Warner. Well, believe it or not, guys, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm, I'm let's 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 do it. The 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 I promise twenty minutes. I'm way beyond that at, at this point. Um, the deal is announced January tenth, two thousand. It's the merger of one hundred sixty four billion dollar AOL with eighty three billion dollar Time Warner. Um, the the deal it's announced as a merger, but the reality is, is AOL shareholders controlled 56% of the merged company and Time Warner shareholders 44%. So it's an acquisition in all but name. Um, and, you know, I actually remember very vividly this happening. And in my memory, I forgot to look this up. They're, like uh, Jerry Levin and Steve Case are on Charlie Rose that night. Like they were everywhere. Like <laughs> Charlie um, Rose. That's yeah. Great. Um, Steve Case vowed that one day AOL Time Warner would have $100 billion in revenue would be the world's first trillion dollar market cap company. Um, there's a quote from Roger McNamee, the, the venture capitalist, who says, quote, let's be clear, this is the single most transformative event I've ever seen in my career. Um, Kara Swisher has a quote from her book where she says, quote, in one major move, the two companies had seemingly addressed both of their weaknesses and intensified their strengths. I won't deny that I really believe that, as did many others, many of whom now pretend they never did. So, I mean, this is January of 2000. This is the height of the bubble. Um, what's also happening around this time, the Microsoft uh, antitrust trial has come to an end. It looks like Microsoft's about to be broken up. 
who looks like is the new, you know, king of the technology hill. It's AOL of all people. Um, what happens is, so the, the deal is announced in January of 2000. Um, on four days later, the Dow Jones Industrial Average peaks um, at a level that it would not return to for more than six years. On March 10th, 2000, the NASDAQ peaks and at a level that it would not reach again until March of 2015. Losing eighty percent of its value at its low, the the bubble bursts, um, and we'll get into why the culturally why the acquisition was a disaster, the merger was a disaster. But again, the reality of it is not that um, people stopped doing dial up. Actually, until two thousand two, the dial up subscriptions were still growing. It peaked at, at 26.7 million. The thing that kills this deal is that as soon as it happens, all of those deals that AOL did with the dot-com companies disappear, evaporate. And I'm not just saying that the three-year deal runs out. I'm saying that the companies are bankrupt and are not going to be sending you any more checks. So essentially, the, the, that insane growth in advertising that had ex- so excited Wall Street. At some point, they, Wall Street was estimating that AOL by 2003 would have more advertising revenue than an ABC or a CBS in television. Like They're, they're thinking, this is it. This is the next big thing. Um, goes away almost from the moment that the deal happens. Um, culturally, you know, I don't know how interesting this is, but you know, th- those AOL cowboys move in. They try to tell the Time Warner guys... Um, you know, okay, we're going to run this like a tech company now. And it's like the, the host body rejecting an organ. Time Warner was always notorious for having these warring fiefdoms of like, you know, I control magazines, you control cable, you control book publishing, you know, they don't. And, and, and not dissimilar from, from AOL. I mean, I think AOL had the internal fiefdom culture too. I mean, you, you mix two of those together that can't go well. Well, and then uh, with AOL coming in as the conquering heroes and being like, we know we know this new this new media game better than you, Yahoo's, you know, Um, but but like literally (laughs) you, Yahoo's, no pun intended. (laughs) Yeah, true. (laughs) There's practical things about culture clashes. Like if uh, um, in one of the books, like Sports Illustrated just refuses to play ball. Like, we're not going to give our content to you. We're running our own. In fact, Sports Illustrated famously never really gave much to the web anyway. Or think of, there's a story about, uh, like, Warner Studios, after the merger, refuses to let AOL take over the Harry Potter website and the online promotion for the, the Harry Potter movies are just getting going, right? So that's why Warner Studios is... Um, the, so when AOL says to them, okay, um, let's take this over, uh, Warner Studios says no, Right. And then the thing that AOL wanted the most, like to save their skin, was AOL's, uh, or I'm sorry, Time Warner's cable division. Uh, Time Warner had Roadrunner famously, which is another thing. Like they they couldn't even get Warner to give them, license them the Roadrunner cartoon thing. <laughs> that's that's the infighting that is at Time Warner. But so when when AOL says, okay, listen, let's let's brand AOL into your 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 you know expanding. Um, cable internet service, um, Time Warner Cable says, get bent. <laughs> right? So even though they're the acquiring company, essentially, um, the, the entrenched 
power brokers at Time Warner just tells these guys to screw off and basically waits them out until um, the the disaster of the merger becomes evident and and get kicked out. Um, well, which and, might- and if you think about like the the power dynamics generated by the the revenue, like I think AOL's total revenue in two thousand right before the merger was like nine point five billion or somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, and and you know. Time Warner had a much more narrow price to earnings ratio where they, you know, of that, uh, what were they, what were they valued at? Like, a um, 150 million or something there. Billion, yeah. Yeah. Or, uh, sorry. 160 billion. Like they had real material revenues such that uh, that had to be like a three X or something, not like a, a you know, r- ridiculous multiple like AOL. Ben, I know what article you found because I found that one too. I think that was adjusted for inflation but it's even worse aol had uh less than five billion in revenue right time it, it was that had, small yeah and time warner had over 25 billion so you know over five times as much and aol's quote-unquote revenue as as we've talked about was you know uh the the snake eating its tail so you can see how you're like a a, a time warner mid-level exec and uh you still feel like you have all the power in that organization or you should by right you know there's also think think of this strategically. So AOL thinks, well, we'll have a cable company, and um, then that you know that'll solve our problem with the transition to broadband. But then if you're Comcast, why do you want to play ball with AOL now, right? Like if AOL had been independent, they were trying very hard to do things like go to Adelphia Cable or Comcast and say, like, let's co-brand AOL and we'll take, you know, a certain percentage of the monthly fees and you take it, but we'll value add to this. And so, but once they're with Time Warner, then, then why would any other, you know, uh, broadband player play ball with them? Right. So in a way, strategically, that never made sense. <laughs> um, but then, like we've been saying, essentially the money just dries up, not again because of the, the dial-up subscriptions are drying up, but the it's, it's all of that uh, ad money, it's all of that, you know, when they could uh, charge the New York Times to, to deign to be on, on their screens and things like that, it just evaporates in the, in the nuclear winter of the dot-com bubble bursting. And so just a year... After the one-year anniversary of the uh, merger being announced, the combined companies are only worth $147 billion. At the time of the announcement, AOL was worth $160 billion. So essentially, the combined companies a year later are worth less than AOL was at the time of the announcement. Yeah. And, and I think they, they continue to go down from there they go down below 100 billion even i think below 50 billion for the combined companies yeah i i had a bunch of stats on that too uh, the only thing that's that's relevant i think is so essentially they it's it's because of the aol side of the equation is delivering no profits and and the revenues are shrinking and so and Wall they stole 55 percent of the company <laughs> exactly so the the write downs um, $54 billion write down the company has to announce in 2002, which was the largest ever at that time. It might still be the largest ever. I don't know. Um, 55.5 billion in 2003, the overall loss for 2002, this says is 99 billion. So I don't know if that's like a fiscal year versus calendar year thing. Um, so basically AOL, everything valuable about that company is completely an illusion. And Wall Street notices, 
And so it, it's announced, what is it, uh, January of 2000? Um, by December of 2001, Jerry Levin steps down. Um, the AOL people are still thinking that they're in charge at this point, so they want to take over the CEO ship of uh, AOL, the control of AOL, uh um, specifically, and actually that's where Bob Pittman really was the guy that thought he was going to take it. Cause he was feeling like Steve case would step down at some point. Um, but no, as we know, it went to Dick Parsons. Um, and so Bob Pittman is out by July of 2002. Steve case finally leaves in May of 2003, September 18th, 2003 time Warner officially drops AOL from its name that the combined company was called AOL time Warner officially, but just uh, three years later, um, AOL ba- or Time Warner basically wants to pretend like AOL never happened. And at this point, they still own the asset. Like they're they're not saying you know, all in one fell swoop. Oh, we're going to spin it out. Like that is still in the company. It's just not doing anything. Well, you as we you always hear those uh, numbers now and again about however millions of people are still paying every month for AOL dial-up. I mean, it's oh yeah, I, I've I've actually got the number uh, as of Verizon's bid in May 2015. They're still making um, 606.5 million dollars in dial-up revenue, and I looked up some. It, it really actually hasn't shrunk much today. Um, so I, they're really actually still maintaining that. Well, you know, there's other there's other assets in there. Um, remember, they bought uh, Netscape, <laughs> only to uh, a little company called Netscape. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, you know, every th- th- there's a reason why um, Kara Swisher's book is called "There's a Pony in Here Somewhere." It's in this if there's a, a, a mountain of shit this big there's got to be a pony somewhere. so they tried man it was a little pony <laughs> well actually it was a huge one and you remind i'm glad you reminded me of this uh i made a note aol instant messenger um at, at its height i think has over a hundred million users okay so like 2003 2004 people have a buddy list it's your social graph Okay. You know, for the research I, you know, I've done on Facebook, basically they, they wrote Facebook. They, they didn't talk to each other. They sat across tables from each other. They're on aim uh, chatting at each other. Like that's how Facebook, um, there's quotes that I found, like, you know, people in charge of aim and things like that are like, yeah, we had social networking, you know? So again, and again, aim came from ICQ and, and which, which I think AOL, Acquired ICQ? AOL acquired. It didn't actually come from ICQ. It's, it, ICQ was another thing. No one knows why they bought it. AIM, it's an interesting story, was an internal thing that AOL didn't want to do, but like people thought it was cool and why, they put it through. Why are messaging platforms always internal things? Slack, Discord, AIM, that are like not actually going to be a product and then shocked. Like We should be less shocked by now that messaging platforms make good spin-out clients. And AOL should have known because they're the ones that... I didn't say this before, but the reason they beat Prodigy is because they let people chat. Prodigy tried to, you know, uh, don't do sexy stuff. Like, so AOL. People want to do the sexy stuff. Just let people talk. The number one thing, if you have a (laughs) product, if you, if you have a technology product, a, a new technology paradigm, the thing that will be the company, the first successful company is the one that just lets people talk to each other. I guarantee you the first billion dollar software platform or whatever company coming from VR is just the one that allows people to talk to each other in VR the best. 
you know, it, with there's the a, iPhone. There's a couple of real solid bets on that. Yeah. 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 With the iPhone, what are the things that came through? You know, things like, you know, WhatsApp and things like that. Yes. Any, any paradigm in technology allowing people to talk to each other is the safest first bet. <laughs> I didn't know that number, the 100 million number for AIM, but it makes sense. Like I had formative, formative, like growing up experiences where I you know, had social, like the first experience socializing with people, um, you know, at least people online and also actually meaningful relationships. Even when we like went to the same high school or middle school, like we'd chat on aim until like two in the morning and you like get to know people and you like care about what's in your, your profile and you care about away messages. Like that was before Facebook wall posts. And like you, you have all these things where like, it's social status. It communicates your personality. It, it, the number of people on your buddy list and the way you have it sorted is like representation of strong and weak social ties. Like that was an essential fabric of life. Well, you know, I, I would even say that same thing from the business perspective. You know, my my three startups were mostly in the 99 to 2005 era. So before even Skype becomes a thing, like, like that's how we did business, you know, Skyping people all the time. It was people's, if you knew their, their instant messenger, uh, screen name, I'm going to talk to Om Malik, uh, next week. And, and, but like, he was famous for that. Like he would give that, like, that's how, if you wanted to get on GigaOm, you, we were talking earlier about, you know, promoting startups and things like that. Like if you knew, um, Om Malik's, uh, instant messenger and i think uh, michael errington was the same way like that's how his, you... his was skype i think i remember okay, him gotcha. being a huge uh yeah yeah but uh, so right uh, you know business was done over that uh, again it's the social graph it's like it, it was your rolodex it was your it, it was how you kept up with people yeah it was everything so i need to do an episode on that i gotta i gotta track down some aim guys and and have them basically oh, totally <laughs> i mean it's incredible it. like it was we joked about it earlier, but like it was Facebook, WhatsApp, you know, uh, WeChat, like, you know, all of this Snapchat, like um, Instagram, well, not Instagram, photos weren't as big a part of it, but like all of the most important. Oh, you could, you could trade files. I don't know if you remember that. You could, well, you could trade music. It it would, (laughs) it would fail all the time. Like it was one of those things. It was like, yeah, give it a shot, but we'll see if it actually happens. (laughs) But it was, you know, for all the, you know, um, lots of people ourselves included make fun of these you know uh non-technologist cowboys in virginia um like they invented the internet <laughs> to borrow an al gore phrase it's it's a little i mean it's a sad thing to watch really because like you know facebook was their opportunity to squander and i mean that it, it's it's as you sort of study network effects and how people build defensibility around their business, there's some fascinating um, stories about, I think it was ICQ um, trying to reverse engineer the AIM protocol so you could chat AIM people from the ICQ client. And these basically engineering wars back going back and forth of how could they keep tweaking the protocol to keep the other guys out and, and keep their network effect to themselves. There was a whole cold war between AOL and 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 Microsoft because you had MSN chat, you had Yahoo chat, and so oh, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was because as soon MSN as MSN Messenger, right? As soon as MSN Messenger would crack the code, AOL would change it, and and right. And I, you saw I don't, these network effect, you know, local network effect dynamics taking place, like just like there is today. I mean, uh, MSN Messenger and Live was the dominant network in a bunch of countries. And AIM was the dominant network in the U.S. And, you know, it's just like, you know, iMessage and, um, you know, and Facebook Messenger here versus WhatsApp in Europe. 
Well, listen, remember, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Jobs famously told us that they were going to open source, uh, uh, FaceTime. I haven't FaceTime seen protocol. That. Yeah. I haven't seen that happen. I, I think that's actually less of a business decision and more of an engineering decision. I think the, as the, as the lore goes, the team that built FaceTime was sitting in their row when he, they heard it for the first time when he announced it on stage and they all looked at each other like, what? Yeah. I think I heard that too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, all right. That's my. I'm sorry I, I droned on so much, but that uh, I will hand it oh, back. No, sorry. I will hand the the keys back to you guys. <laughs> Where do we even well, the, pick up? <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, this well, David, great. do you, do you, do you want to talk into anything at all? Any any more acquisition history and facts, or should we go into the the acquisition category? And I can kind of frame well, that up a little bit. The, the one thing I want to add, nothing more on the history and facts of this itself, but is just such a. Um, you know, such a a fitting coda to this whole story is history repeating itself, you know, again, and look where we are today. And AOL is owned by Verizon. AOL spun out of Time Warner in 2009. Um, it was valued at just over $3 billion versus the, the astronomic heights of, you know, nearly 10 years before that. Um, and that's mostly because they had all this ad tech that they've bought over the years, you know? Yep. Yep. So they get acquired by Verizon. And then on the Time Warner side, the deal hasn't been approved by um, by the government yet, but they are in the process of getting acquired by AT&T. So, you know, there were all these uh, jokes about, you know, the worst merger of all time and, you know, this you know, tech internet company AOL, you know, merging with an old media company. And here we are in 2017 and both of them are owned by phone companies. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. really hard to imagine. Well, um, for acquisition category, uh, I think, why don't we actually t take a stab from both directions? So let's say first, um, because it actually was, you know, AOL, uh, uh, taking over, um, Time Warner, what kind of acquisition was, uh, was that for AOL? Our standard categories are people, technology, product, business line, asset, or other, um, Brian, if I may be so so bold as to voice what I think you would say, um, this is actually an other because it's not necessarily acquiring. Um, um, if anything, it's maybe acquiring a business line, but it's it's like acquiring stability and liquidity. It seems to be what you're applying, like like applying an, an exit strategy. So, see, here's what I would say: their rationale is that they're 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 buying the business line of the. Or the technology, it's murky to me what the category is. But they want the they want the um, the cable companies so that they can transition into into broadband. That's their rationale. What are they really buying? The assets. They're essentially trying to say, listen, if if our stock is ephemeral, we need to convert it into something that'll last forever. Time Magazine has been around since the twenties. You know, Warner Brothers has been around since the twenties. Like, so it's it's the asset of content is king that they were really in their heart going after. Yeah, well put, man. And and, and as a little aside, like if you are at the negotiating table there and you're AOL, how do you keep a straight face through all this and and really represent w what you're in this for and and well you know, we what can time we Warner can get getting. into speculating on that later. <laughs> uh, all right, I'll, I'll I'll save it. So then let's let's take a stab from the other well, side. Actually, so, actually, uh, before you do, David, do you agree with that? What was what's yeah, your take on it? Well, I think uh, I think I'd classify it as I think you guys are totally right, but to me that I'd classify it as an other because I'm I'm trying to rack my brain here about any other 
deal we've covered on this show where the rationale uh, for it has literally zero to do with the business. <laughs> there is nothing going on here except, you know, it's not an asset that's valuable to AOL as a business. Uh, it's certainly not technology. It's not people. Uh, it's, you know, business lines, sure, but like it's just tons of business lines. They're essentially buying a conglomerate. Um, the only reason they're doing it is to just sort of, you know, save their own, you know, <laughs> net worth, personal net worth. This might be a, a crazy analogy, but the analogy that springs to mind is, you know, how like, um, you know, like Dubai and, and all the, the Gulf countries, they know that oil is going to run out someday. So they're trying to turn into tourist yeah, destinations. Yeah. So that has nothing to do with energy or natural resources, but they're like, yeah, we know <laughs> we, we got to do something that's sustainable, you know? Yeah, exactly. And th I think that's what's going on here. It's like uh, it's like Snapchat today. If they were to decide to to go buy land in Manhattan, right, or 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 an oil company, <laughs> which famously Zynga yeah. did when they bought their headquarters in San Francisco, right in the heart of Soma. It's right, a huge building right across the street from Airbnb, and uh, is by far the most valuable part of Zynga. <laughs> well, the most valuable part of of, of New York Times is their their building, or which. Did they sell that already? I don't know. Uh, they yeah. sold it and they leased it back. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So let okay. Uh, uh, let's do do the reverse. So you guys go first, and I'll go last. So what is what is uh, what is Time Warner thinking it's doing? <laughs> <laughs> so in my head, you know, I'm wondering if they're if they're buying technology, or they think they're buying technology, or if it's really buying distribution that like say they've somehow missed out on the internet. And, you know, they, they need this way to distribute their content and it's much better to actually own it, um, than to, to partner and, you know, by, by buying AOL or by, you know, getting bought by AOL, then suddenly, you know, AOL has all these dial up customers. They're in, they're in all these homes and they have a brand new channel to get their content to them. Um, I, I think if I was going to try and rationalize it from, from, um, Time Warner's side, that's what I would go with. Yeah, I mean, I think they're just some amazing quotes you know, doing the research here from all the principals involved and from media and observers at the time. And But I think it's kind of like, you know, Kara Swisher, you know, as, as you quoted Brian from her book, you know, she's the one who's honest about this. Like, yeah, at the time, like, you know, people were riding high on, on something and, and they thought that this made sense. And, you know, Jerry Levin, the CEO of Time Warner and then, and then CEO of the combined company, you know, he has this quote, uh, from the, when the deal gets announced, I, I think he, I think he said this to, maybe there was a, a big Washington post article. I think it was in this might've been written by, by Kara. Um, yeah, she was it, with them at the time. Yeah. 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 Uh, he says this new world of valuations in the internet economy is something I accept. <laughs> so, I mean, he's basically saying like, this company that's buying us, like, kind of has no business. I don't understand the business, but like, there's the new normal, you know, and that's how people yeah, talked yeah. back then. Absolutely. Uh, so I think it's just like, you know, it, I don't want to be too disparaging of them because really, as Kara said, like, everybody believed it then, but like, they drank the Kool Aid. They thought that there was, you know, a new reality there. Jerry Levin bought the Kool-Aid, yeah. which is why I'm going to make the argument bizarrely enough for people, because that's what he thinks. He thinks, you know, 
he's coming to the end of his career. This is going to be my legacy. I was the guy that was smart enough to hitch this company to the to the horse the 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 thoroughbreds that are going to take it into the 21st century, right? And so it's 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 not people because he thinks that you know they're they're these brilliant businessmen. It's just that they have cracked the code of something that we old media people can't haven't been able to figure out, and we've been trying to do it for ten years, you know. So it's people in that sense. And there's such a great quote from from Bob Pittman from AOL, who they're totally like the pushers, like just you know feeding more supply into you know these guys, you know via you know mainline. He says he's quoted in the press at the time uh, saying that uh, this is uh, I think it might be from the same article. The slow moving Time Warner would now this is the the author of the article writing would now take off at quote internet speed accelerated by AOL. And then Bob Pittman comes in with a quote: "All you need to do is put a catalyst to Time Warner, and in a short period you can alter the growth rate. The growth rate will be like an internet company." <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. this is like the this is like. <laughs> Yeah. It's alchemy. Zero. Alchemy, totally. through, alchemy via, um, you know, buzzwords, essentially. Here, here, David, pass some of that over here. <laughs> totally. <laughs> this is like when the, the Beatles period, when, you know, they went and lived in India and, like, <laughs> you know, started doing their heavy drugs, like... I mean, it does feel like like literally nothing in that sentence is grounded in reality. Like, it, it, and you can understand in broad strokes how you look at a tech company and you look at the way that it grows. But like, zero of that was connected to like the intrinsic value and why tech companies get the multiples they do and why they have the growth rates they do. And like any discussion of zero marginal cost, it's like, well, catalyst, you know. Well, can I make uh, a point here? Um, in my research of the dot com, the bubble generally, what you have to understand is everyone was was saying okay this is a bubble 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 you know from 97 on and kept being proven wrong and like you know in in my book like there's a thing you know where there's quotes from like you know bears on wall street or whatever eventually everyone just capitulates cuz you've been wrong for so long you know when 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 you're like there's no way yahoo's a 10 billion dollar company and there's no way they're a 30. There, there's no way there's a 50. When they're over $100 billion, at some point, you just got to be like, well, shit. <laughs> so it was, and you know what? There's all sorts of theory about bubbles and things like that, that that's when the bubbles burst. When you finally slay the last bear, you know, when people's careers have been destroyed because they've been Cassandra's for so long. And it's like, listen, I've been listening to you and I missed out on like a 500% upside, you know, like, so, so I guess I'm buying Bitcoin at 4,600. Mm. <laughs> I was I, just thinking this whole time, uh, this is maybe, <laughs> our, our, uh, maybe transition to what would have happened otherwise. I would have loved to have like had a conversation with Steve jobs during this period and been like, dude, what are you like? What's your take on this? Like, uh, I, I can only imagine what he would have said. Yeah, I, I don't know. I have thoughts on that in the sense that um, he, I mean, because what his, what happened in history is that um, they waited until the, till the, everything exploded, there's ashes on the ground, and they sort of rise up in, in, a, in a place where no one thought, you know, hardware, <laughs> or no one thought anything was going to be, everyone was going to be on the web well, and things but, like that. But Steve's laying the groundwork for that all through this period. Uh, the next acquisition is at the end of 1996. And then they have the sort of that, that hub, the, the, the digital hub the digital strategy. Hub, yep. With yeah, the iMac. So, 
Mm-hmm. So they kind of do ride with the it's, iMac. It's when this is happening. Yeah, they they do kind of position themselves as we're the best uh, computer maker for this new web era. So, well, we had a few few counterfactuals throughout history and facts about what would have happened otherwise. Um, but maybe maybe a word on like what would have happened had these companies stayed independent. Yeah. So that the one thing that I really want to explore here, I, I think we sort of have a. Uh, we could talk about AOL, but I think my my just base assumption there is that it goes to zero or close. Um, but the thing about the thing I'm curious about is how, is Time Warner potentially do they end up in a way better spot today in 2017 if they hadn't gone through this, or did this have some kind of positive effect on them that we haven't really talked they, about? They yet? gained some DNA maybe or some thinking. Yeah, I don't know. I would actually, uh, again, my most recent episode was with a a Yahoo guy that, um, you know, Yahoo surviving the dot-com bust. Like, they had the same issue of um, all of their dot-com advertisers going away, so where are they going to get their their money from? And, um, you know, they they basically Hollywoodize themselves, but they they successfully turned the business around. So it's, it's almost like that idea of if you do have to struggle, you're forced into creativity to find ways... So I'm not saying that AOL would have, you know, succeeded in, in anything. But, you know, maybe if they're desperate, they do take a look at the one thing that's actually still growing, AIM, and try to figure out, <laughs> you know, it's it's sort of like it's if you've got the parachute, uh, then you just kind of enjoy the ride down and you're not you're not hustling. <laughs> well, I think we covered the, the, the counterfactuals there. I don't have anything else for what would have happened otherwise. Should we move on to tech themes? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, there's a few that we've talked about, but I uh, one that we haven't talked about yet and that AOL is completely notorious for is a lot of their rise, um, and especially in, in branding and in brand recognition and then in, in distribution, is really like one of the earliest internet growth hacks ever, and that's distributing the CDs. And it's doing something that other people aren't to to get noticed and to get distribution because they're they're the point I want to make here is there are there's a trick and then the earliest people make out like bandits and then everybody realizes what's going on and then it becomes the normal thing and then there's basically a, a CPM race um, to the bottom and then you're competing against everybody else in, in sort of a commodity uh, highly efficient marketplace like if you're buying Facebook ads now and it's not any of the new formats, you're not jumping on whatever the new flashy thing is like you can basically, depending on your category, understand what your cost of customer acquisition is going to be. And if you're AOL and you do a very brilliant marketing move of putting these CDs at the checkout where no digital company and really no company is doing their their distribution, like it's in movie theaters, it's in, in blockbusters, like all these unconventional places. Um, and you're giving away something, you know, the, the benefit of, of AOL is a hundred hours or a thousand hours for free. Like there, there's so much that they can give away for free because it's the internet and it's software and it's, it's, you know, reduced marginal costs relative to hard goods that it's, it's shocking to people. And for the first time they're like, Oh my God, this, this seems like a crazy deal. And I've never, no one's ever tried to reach me at this point before. So to, to me, it's like a lot of times 
companies succeed because of the initial basically distribution hack or, or, um, or, you know, I, I guess growth hack, but really like yeah. figuring out how to get in front of people where no one else is getting in front of them. I love that image of like <laughs> the, uh, you know, Virginia suburbs, AOL, you know, eighties and nineties guys being the original growth hackers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, hustlers, that's, that's what I yeah, always hustling. say. I mean, they're definitely hustlers. Yeah. Um, David, you want to do a tech yeah. thing? Yeah. yeah. So mine, I mean, I, I, I alluded to this a little earlier, but I think, um, I think this episode for me is a great counterfactual illustration to, I, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. What really is like the power of the internet, right? Like they, this merger is everything getting everything wrong about the internet. And what I mean by that is like the internet connects people. We were, you know, Brian, you were talking about aim and like letting people talk to one another. And like, how do you, you know, how do you build value and create platforms on the internet? Like, as we've learned over the last 20, 30 years, like you let people talk to one another, you let people connect with one another. And AOL, instead of doubling down on that side of what they were doing, they doubled down and they bought a media company. The thing about a media company is there it's a manufacturing based, you know, analogy. Like you're not manufacturing physical goods, but you're manufacturing media. Like you're making movies, you're writing journalism, you're making music. Like that stuff you gotta pay and make and sell. And like that's you can build great businesses doing that. Of course, like Time Warner is a great business, not to knock it, but like that's not the internet. What works on the internet and why you know the promise the dream of the 90s right was you know what has been realized now which is facebook google youtube airbnb uber twitch you know like amazon amazon originally wasn't this but now is this they don't make stuff like they connect people um (laughs) Facebook is a bundle of content and they don't pay for any of it. That's yeah, exactly right. what I was going to say. So what <laughs> what what actually succeeded in the next decade? It was Facebook and Google who essentially make money off of everybody else's content by doing nothing. Well, I mean, they, they sell the ads. They sell the ads against it and they're the platform that people find it. Essentially, where do I find my Sports Illustrated article or my whatever in my Facebook feed, right? Or I, you know, do, do a, a Google search for something and, and some evergreen article from somebody's website, you know. But right. So AOL is going after the content because they think, well, that's the evergreen thing. That's the actual value. Right. But But they're getting in a worse business by doing Mm -hmm. that. And the value of that content has been completely undermined because of what the Facebooks and the Googles did. Now, thinking about that, why is everyone getting into content? Why is a why is why is Apple going to buy James Bond? Yeah, I don't understand it, honestly. So either either we're not smart enough to know how the worm has turned or people are making similar mistakes or what? Because we're now entering an era where, you know, Twitter and and, uh, NFL games on, you know, like, what is it? It Is content valuable or isn't it? I don't know. (laughs) I I guess the the only thing I could say, uh, I'm not smart enough to opine. Although... You know, I, I think back to our, our episode on uh, on BAMTech, uh, which was really fun to dig into. These companies, the, the Apples, the Amazons, the Facebooks, 
Um, they're a little bit playing a different game now uh, that they're so big. They are so big. They have so much money. And um, I think in a little bit they're playing defense versus like um, versus offense. And that's something we've talked about on the show. Like defense in that like they want to keep people. They need to keep people on their properties. Um, that's how the, the merry-go-round keeps spinning. And by going out and buying these super expensive manufactured content, um, I think the hope is that that'll attract and keep people on the, on the platform that that'll attract people or, or retain people on the platform. And then they'll stick around for, you know, all the stuff they're not making, which is making the wheel go around. But if they, if they move to a paradigm where they're paying for all the content on their platforms, like that, that's a worse business. (laughs) I think it might be, uh, there's like a TikTok thing here, right? Where first everybody's free and open about their content being aggregated because they like, I mean, if you just look at what Disney was doing for the longest time, they're like, well, we're, we create content and it needs to be viewed everywhere because we're horizontal. And so then they spend five to 10 years executing that strategy. And then suddenly the world starts to change and people start locking up their content and vertically integrating. And then you're like, well, okay, now we need to change our whole strategy and, and, you know, own every dollar that comes from serving our content. And it's, it's the aggregators that lose out in that world where the content starts getting locked up. And so when you see a, you know, Apple or a Netflix or any of these, you know, Netflix so much more so because they, they started as a pure aggregator. Um, you need to make your own stuff because if everything's living in silos, you got to have a good silo. The history repeating itself lesson is that Yahoo, this is going back to our, our, our previous episode we did together. Yahoo and the portals wanted to keep everybody on their pages Google found a way to make money by being like, no, leave our page. That's fine. We'll still make money off you. So the question actually is, is that a dead paradigm? Is the open web a dead paradigm? Because if it is, then it's all walled gardens all the way down from here on out. (laughs) It's turtles all the way down. (laughs) Turtles all the way down. Or, Or is that sort of freedom of digital makes everything a commodity? Uh, something that always comes back and rears its head. No, I mean, high, high quality content is very expensive to make and very valuable. And um, it's only gotten even more magnified in this world where everybody is, is, is talking about the same thing at the same time. They've been saying Actually, content is king since the nineties, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but I think it is like the, the promise of the internet though. I don't know. Maybe we are, you know, talking back into a world where, um, content is the most valuable, but, but what Facebook and Google, you know, and others proved is like before them, you know, content was King, but it's not King anymore. Like being the platform is King and that's not the same as distribution. Like it was always content is better than being the cable company, the dumb pipe, right. But being the platform where you control, uh, the user experience and funnel, uh, and you control attention, um, that's better than making the content. Mm. So it's the news feed versus the, yeah. the, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm, I'm thinking about it like rather than me having the choice in my RSS reader of choosing from any of the feeds I subscribe to Facebook slams something down my throat and I say like, yep, I'll read that. And so if you're, you know, uh, yeah, because having then you an get RSS all your feed news from, feedback, from Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, sharp listeners might, we might have 
all argued both sides of this at this point. <laughs> we might have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we might have. Uh, tech well, news. but David, I'll, I'll, I'll give you credit for that that point. I've never thought about that before, that distribution is, is you know, if you're going to make a line and say content or distribution, there's something sort of different in being one of these uh, platforms that dictates well, where your attention goes. I'll use another analogy before I, I, I give up the ghost here. Uh, Airbnb, right? Like, it, the analogy, right, would be like, you know, um, it, it would be great to be joie de vivre, like, or, or a boutique, really high end hotel chain, like you'd do really well, you'd make money. But like, it's way better to be Airbnb, because then you, you know, you don't have to make the hotels, you don't have to build them, you don't have to run them. Uh, but you can access everybody and you can open up all this new supply that um, didn't exist uh, in the marketplace before. Um, like that's, to me, that's like the dream of, you know, the internet. Um, uh, going and, and buying, you know, if Airbnb were to go and buy the rights to list, um, you know, uh, Fairmont or Ritz, you know, Carlton hotels on their platform, cause it's super premium, super exclusive content. That seems odd. So again, I'm confused. Are we arguing that content is? <laughs> well, I'm arguing, I'm arguing that content yeah. is not King. That's what I'm right. I'm right. Arguing. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. You guys are still in this game. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I withdraw formally. <laughs> All right. This is great. This is our first, like, uh, not first, but in a long time, uh, oh, real wait, debate on acquired. <laughs> wait, Brian, do you mean, do you mean because you're, you're a, uh, an author, an and author a, now, a, a yeah. podcaster I'm, now? I'm and... moving on to being <laughs> a, a historian author. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no more startups for oh. me. Then I just withdraw from from this specific argument. Then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So 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 moving on to grading. Um, the funniest part about this whole thing is since AOL is actually the acquirer, uh, like what I thought I was going to grade. Like I came into this thinking like, well, this will be a fun first F. But like for AOL, I mean. It's like an A minus, right? Like they, it, that's the they, question. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> and anyone that has access to a Bloomberg terminal, like I do not, I don't know that anyone's done the math on that. So if you're an AOL shareholder and you have 10 shares before the acquisition, before the merger, what is the value of that? And then what is the value, say, of the day that they remove AOL from the AOL Time Warner name? Now, it's got to be less. We know that, right? But how much less? And then if you compare that to, like, you know, the counterfactual of if they had never combined, would AOL have gone to zero? So is it actually a success? There are lots of people. You read these books. You get the, the, the quotes from the Time Warner insiders. They absolutely believe this was money laundering. They absolutely believe that they got held up. Um, the, the AOL Cowboys come in with their hugely valuable stock. They laundered it into this, you know, uh, actually valuable, uh, Time Warner stock and they got away with a heist essentially. That's, that's the view of a lot of Time Warner people. Um, but I actually don't know the math on that. And, and if someone can do it like, so even if, even if like that, that, that 10 shares of AOL, even if it only goes down by 60%, that's better than going down 99%, right? So is it actually a success? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think so. Like it's, in the one sense you could look at, uh, without doing the math on share prices and holdings, you know, if AOL was worth, 
whatever it was, 200 ish billion, you know, before the merger. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately got spun out of Time Warner at a value of 3 billion and got acquired by Verizon for mm, 4.4 mm. billion in, <laughs> you know, 2015 or whenever yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, Okay, so that's like a huge <laughs> loss in value. Had you but been you a still had your Time Warner shares, right? But in, but instead, you got shares in AOL Time Warner, and then after the spinoff, you kept your Time Warner shares, and Time Warner just got acquired for you know is in the process of getting acquired for right about that's the eighty five billion dollars I think. Yeah. So you know you now have joint about ninety billion dollars versus five. That seems good if you were an AOL shareholder. I mean, of course, you could have just you should have just sold at the top and like put your money into uh, you know Amazon, but <laughs> or Domino's Pizza or or Priceline Domino's Pizza. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was gonna say the only way this could be better for AOL is if they had actually bought a growth company like eBay. Um, yeah, uh, that could have been a win. But then, like we said, uh, listen, uh, the Cowboys come into eBay, tell them how to run things. Uh, would they have been smart enough to buy? PayPal. PayPal was the real valuable business there. Um, it's got to be an F, guys. It's got. There's a reason that people call it <laughs> the worst merger of all time because it destroys uh, well, so much value. Well, it destroys a ton of value for Time yeah. Warner for sure. It destroys a uh, hundred billion dollars worth of value in the end. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is, is that was that all from AOL? It feels it feels crappy to like consider giving them an A just because like the AOL, you know, management team and shareholders like save their own, you know, personal wealth essentially. <laughs> well, but isn't that what we grade on? Is it was was this a good a good thing that uh for the shareholders of the acquirer? Oh, well this is this is good. If shareholders or is it a good thing for the business? Terrible for the business, good for the shareholders. What do we do? It's better for the acquiring shareholders than it could have been. It's bad for all of the shareholders involved in the end. Because essentially AOL is a is a sinking ship that just grabbed another ship and brought it down with it. <laughs> and didn't sink as far slower. Of it. Yeah. yeah. Slower. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't reach the bottom, but you're still underwater for <laughs> <laughs> uh. there's there's gotta be there's got to be 30 Harvard Business School case studies that are telling us that this has to be an F. If this is the first F, if you're ever going to give an F to something in this show. There's also got to be some nice case studies and some sort of like um, um, like business epistemological thought. Um, I don't even know if that's the right word that I'm trying to think of. But basically around that question David just asked, is it, is it the shareholders or is it the business? And, and David, is there a difference? Well, um, corporate um, behavior of the past 50 years would uh, imply no. But I think if you look back farther in history than that, there absolutely is a difference. If you if you can't save the patient, you know, like I, I, I shareholder, yeah. but like if the enterprise itself dies. Yeah. So keeping the enterprise itself alive, even in some sort of mutated form is valuable because i guess if the yeah. patient is dead they're dead well it's sort of like i mean i think what we're coming to here and we have been for the whole episode is like exactly what you said brian like they were drowning and they grabbed a you know uh life vest and that 
kept them from drowning. On the other hand, it didn't get them to shore. <laughs> they didn't catch a boat. They grabbed like a, a piece of driftwood. I think I'm I think I'm ready to put forth a grade. I think I give them I give the acquisition a C for AOL shareholders because of that. Like, yeah, you 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 did, you know, keep the business alive. You you preserved shareholder value relative to the alternative. Um, but you didn't, you know, uh, relative to what, you know, our two best acquisitions of all time on this show that that we've rated thus far next and Instagram, like those are businesses that (laughs) to use, um, uh, to use Bob Pittman's, you know, drug pusher, like analogy, uh, you know, accelerated their company, you know, their acquirers at internet speed. Like there was no acceleration happening here. Um, there was just, uh, you know, buoyancy. I'm going to do F because if if there's if there's never been an f on this show you're never going to get a better chance <laughs> no one's gonna <laughs> no one's gonna begrudge you giving this the f <laughs> like we kind of set, set a bookend well, set the scale listen yeah the scale doesn't have any meaning unless there's a top and a bottom <laughs> like, <laughs> well if it were time warner acquiring aol absolutely f. yeah um, no well, I do question have, about I it. I do have sort of a logical reason for it, which is that the the again, it's sort of what we said about what happens in the next decade. Um, it's not like being in the magazine business, being in the television business, being even in the movie business has was not actually the evergreen thing. They they didn't grab something that turned out to be the thing that look uh movie attendance goes down television watching goes down uh, magazines are basically on life support newspapers are essentially dead like so this idea that they jumped into media that would always be valuable um was not right and they were they were a part of the disruptive force that made that happen um, and so I, this, this plunges us back in this, this argument about, um, the value of content and things like that. But, uh, I think it's a bad thing because in the end I would view it as two doomed businesses or at least two, not doomed, let's say extremely challenged businesses, um, so embracing each other. And so a successful, um, get out of jail by AOL would have been, a better company an uh, an eBay or something, but, um, would have been staying independent, um, struggling. What's the one thing we've got? It's aim. So, so the, the failure is, uh, uh two companies that, uh, were, were going down embracing each other. It, 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 it so it's, it, it's, it's bad to me because they, they, they clung on to the wrong lily pad. How many mixed metaphors can I do? <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. <laughs> well, you know, I was trying to think what would my F be? Um, um, and I think, you know, what an, an A is a business is dying and acquires something and then can become the most valuable business of all time. So that's Apple. Um, or I'm sorry, an A plus. And then an F would be a company is do is the best business of all time and acquires something and that acquisition manages to sink it to zero. Bankrupt them. You're right. Um, you're right. You're right. Y- y- yeah. And so, um, with our scale, 
you know, it's almost sort of like logarithmic toward the top because we often are like, well, we gave Instagram an A, so this thing has to be like a B plus. Um, and, and like there's, there's, um, you know, very successful acquisitions that we don't give A's. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think like I've given, and I, we may have to go back and revise at some point, but I've given YouTube a C because like it didn't, I was worried about the opportunity cost of focusing on that for Google when it was a break-even business. And so to me, like, while I don't know if I could go F because uh, AOL didn't uh, completely crater their own business by making this acquisition, um, <laughs> but I don't Warner think did. I... Time Warner did, but they're the acquiree. Yeah, I mean, right. I would have to go like D, D minus because, you know, I think had buying Time Warner destroyed AOL, then it's an F. Um, but it's certainly worse than a C for me. So I'm going to like, and way, way worse. So I'm going to go like D minus. And like, I hope to one day find something on acquired where something went from like a fortune 10 to destroying themselves. Well, I don't hope, but you know, <laughs> if we ever have an F, that's what it would be. <laughs> like some company that buys something that causes cancer for $10 billion. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, which actually I shouldn't joke about that. That's probably happened or something. <laughs> um, well, all I want to do is, uh, as for, as, as long as this show goes on, I'm the one that first gave an F let's put that in the record. Great. You're, you're forever, <laughs> you know, in our, you have, you can put in your trophy case, the, the original, we'll change the Twitter bio. Yeah. <laughs> the original F. Uh, carve outs. Awesome. Uh, qu carve outs quick. Yeah. Yep. So, um, mine is a, a, a book that, um, I'm almost done listening to on audiobook, and I'm going to be really bummed when it's over because it's really nice to have a dose of this kind of reminder in my life every day on my commute. And that is give and take by Adam Grant. And it's really making the rounds right now. So I'm sure a lot of listeners have already, already heard of it or had people tell them they should read it. It's so awesome. It's, it's research backed, um, descriptions of the behaviors of givers takers and matchers in our lives and what the results are of those personality types and and a litany of examples of um givers and what they've done and how they've succeeded in their careers and the the super interesting thing that pops out from the book is um if you look at sort of a spectrum of people's success in their careers um takers uh uh if you look at a, a span from one to five where one is is not succeeding at all and five is succeeding fantastically um takers occupy two and four matchers occupy three and givers occupy one and five and so it's this interesting uh, dissection of just by being a give first person it doesn't guarantee that you're going to end end up on top or bottom and it tries to sort of tease apart what are the the traits of givers that that can you know make you someone that that ends up ahead in the long run just because you you truly care about people and you're truly a um you know, someone that, that, uh, looks out for the interests of others. Um, and, and it's just an, a really interesting, um, it, it's interesting to understand something that I never had a mental, mental structure for before. And it's also like, just a, like a good little kick to be a better person. And it's, uh, it's nice to have that voice every day. And the narrator sounds like Craig Federici. So if you like watching Apple keynotes, you'll like listening to this guy's voice. My carve out, uh, which is appropriate for this episode with Brian and the Internet History Podcast uh, and has been a deeply historical episode. Um, another book, uh, a great one that I'm also 
a little over halfway through reading and can't wait to finish, um, called season of the witch. Uh, and I have that on my Kindle. I haven't read uh, it yet. Oh, you, you'll, you'll love it. It's, um, it's the history of, um, the dark history of the dark side of the counterculture and San Francisco and what happened to San Francisco in the sixties and in particular in the seventies, um, you know, the, the Manson murders, the Zodiac killer, the zebra killings, um, everything that was really the, the not often told, you know, we remember the sixties as like peace and love and it's the 50th anniversary of the summer of love, um, in the, in the city, uh, in the city this summer. And, um, you know, what gets celebrated is, is the, the happy, the psychedelics, but, uh, there was a true, true dark side. Uh, and it's very, very fascinating to read about and really shaped the city. And, um, you know, again, like we've talked about on this podcast too, um, it was the tech movement in Silicon Valley that really came out of the next period in, in history in this area. And, um, it was shaped by, you know, by the dark side as well. Is the, is the tech angle in the book? Um, I, I, not thus far. Um, and I, and I don't know cause I haven't gotten to the end yet. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to see, but I'm also started reading another book called what the dormouse said, Oh yeah, uh, yep, yep. which you've probably read, yep. uh, which is about the tech angle and, and the sixties and the counterculture. Um, I, I just re- uh, watched for the first time recently the, the Zodiac movie, David Fincher's Zodiac. Uh, and, um, I had always heard it was a good movie, but I tend to, you know, uh, avoid serial killer movies but that really is a good movie um i was gonna do a book anyway so i'm not gonna um i'm not gonna uh, buck this trend but um it, claude shannon uh people might know from the book uh the information but also basically the guy that invented information theory you know um Alan Turing knew the dude and like every, like he, he shows up at the intersections of all sorts of things with computing and, and the internet and things like that. Um, the, I think it's the first, uh, full comprehensive biography of him. It's called a mind at play, how Claude Shannon invented the information age. The authors are Rob Goodman, um, and Jimmy Sony. I have not read it at all, <laughs> but it is number, it's the top of my list to read. And so, um, I think that, uh, since that's my, uh, sort of gig is, um, you know, the history of technology and things like that. I'm, I'm eager to learn about the, the minds that, that shaped, um, information technology and, and Claude Shannon. I, I already, uh, if you've read the information, you, you should know about him, um, basically formulating, the theory behind essentially coding and how logic goes into programming and things like that and, and taking it from the philosophical into the practical. Um, so yeah, I haven't read it yet, so I can't say that it's great, but, uh, I want to know more about Claude Shannon and, and you should too, probably. Well, that's, uh, that's it for our show. Um, one thing I forgot to mention earlier that might be interesting to listeners is, um, you know, we spent a couple of episodes asking you guys to, uh, to fill out a survey and we posted, uh, posted the results on, um, acquired.fm slash audience. So if you're interested, we've got some interesting stats on there. Two thirds of our, our audience is, uh, is based in the U.S. Um, 24% of you are engineers. Um, 26% of you are currently or have started a startup and there's loads of other good, uh, information in there. So if you're curious about, um, basically acquired listenership, check out acquired.fm slash audience. Yeah. And one more, um, 
bonus slash super carve out for the end of the episode um, is, of course, the Internet History Podcast. Uh, as as we have told you guys uh, many times on this show, you know, Ben and I are both huge fans, Brian, of your work. It's awesome. And, and this has been so much i think even more fun than last time having you on the show um but i think we i think we got to know each other like i totally was so geeked to do this because i was like okay i know i think we're good together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so i knew i knew the rhythms and so like i was like oh this is gonna be great the peanut butter and jelly of tech history podcast <laughs> um, well thank you and since i'm gonna just basically post this on my side completely unedited I, I i promoted it last time um i know i got feedback a bunch of you listened and subscribed and listen uh you can hear that these guys are are smart and um they come at it from a different angle than i do and it's fantastic acquired uh acquired fm right acquired.fm yeah, on, gotcha. uh, on the internet uh, AOL or otherwise <laughs> yeah AOL keyword acquired I was gonna say <laughs> they used to have keywords you could oh, buy keywords, keywords. <laughs> yes <laughs> it, like literally yeah. if you wanted books you didn't have to it wasn't it wasn't Google AdWords or AdSense it was literally you would type books into the AOL search bar and they would give you not web pages, but just what they had in their system in terms of books. And you could buy that keyword. I think I did it once, actually. <laughs> well, guys, that's it. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client to Acquired or the Internet History Podcast. And if you feel so inclined, we would love a review on iTunes. Have a great day. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at nethistorypod. And my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening.